and the ESV version. For this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. The word of the Lord. I get to do something today. I get to do something today already that that uh, not many people get to do. I get to fulfill two offices: worship leader and preacher. That's a special thing. You don't get to, you don't see that very often. It's a pretty high calling in order to fulfill both. There's very distinct qualifications, character traits, skills, talents, abilities that it takes to be able to do both and to be able to do them well. I'm not saying I did them well. Hopefully. Um, but it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty neat thing. Not many people do that. And, and there's obviously reasons why. Um, our gifts are all slightly different. Um, there are lots of reasons over the history of Israel why the roles of priest and king were separate. We're separate. We're going to be looking this morning at, in Hebrews, at Hebrews 7, in a place where those roles of priest and king are perfectly combined. We've been in, again, in Hebrews, 
Looking at our better hope as we sang about, our better Moses, our better high priest. Uh, today, we want to look at three things in particular as we unpack uh, this seemingly random character, Melchizedek. We're going to unpack three things. A better king, a better priest, and a better model to follow. A better king, a better priest, and a better model to follow. We're actually going to begin today in Genesis 14. You can turn there if you like, or just take note of Genesis 14, where the story comes from. Because we've been talking in the past weeks and skirting around, and all the people who've preached on it have kind of just nicely avoided Melchizedek for you, so it leads up to me, and I get to talk about Melchizedek. But we hear no less than eight times in Hebrews, in the order of Melchizedek, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So let's see where this comes from. So in Genesis 14, we have the story which unfolds with three primary characters. Abram, who has not yet had his name changed to Abraham. He's received the promise, but his name hasn't been changed yet. And we have the king of Sodom as a primary character and the king of Salem, also known as Melchizedek, as a primary character. So let me tell you the story of Genesis 14. Again, feel free to read this on your own. Take note of the passage. Abraham has moved into Canaan. God has called him into Canaan. And he and his nephew Lot have moved there. And as they've grown, their sheep and herds have grown. There's not enough room for the both of them. And so they say, we're going to split. Abram says, you choose a side, I'll go the other way, amiably. So Lot looks around and sees the land of Sodom. And Sodom looks awesome because right around the Dead Sea, it's really, really fertile. It's beautiful. The land looks good. It's promising. And that's where I'm going. So Lot chooses and, and he heads off. And Abraham goes the other direction. Over time, the king of Sodom and four other local kings have been in battle for 12 years with King Keterleomer and three other kings from further north. And they're supposed to pay tribute, but in year 12, they decide not to pay the tribute. And King Keterleomer goes on his ransacking mission and he finally gets around to coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the king of Sodom with his four other kings, they fight against King Keterleom and his three other kings, and they lose. People are scattered in the mountains. They're, the scripture tells us they're lost in the tar pits that surround the region. But in essence, all of the people are taken, and they head off with Keterleomer, and he takes them as hostages and prisoners. And all of the booty, all of the bounty, all of the plunder of Sodom and Gomorrah goes with them, including Lot. And his family, Abraham's nephew. And so Abraham, being the righteous king that he is, the great leader that he is, takes all 318 of his shepherds with him, and away they go. And they pursue King Keterleomer, who's just defeated five kings. They pursue him. They catch up to him. They defeat him in battle completely, taking back all of the people and all of the goods. Everything comes back with them. That's got to be a lot of stuff. Back they come. And on the way back, there's an encounter where Abram, Abram, bringing back all of the people and all of the goods, is met by the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. The king of Salem. Now, don't let me confuse them. If I say the wrong one at the wrong, hopefully you'll know which one I mean. I've done that several times in my practice rounds here. The king of Salem and the king of Sodom. Now, the king of Salem, for background here, is Melchizedek. 
His name Melchizedek, literally meaning king of righteousness. And the place he rules, Salem, he demonstrates he is the king of peace, the king of Salem, as in Jerusalem, the king of Salem, king of peace. And we're going to see that he's going to be associated here with giving. We'll talk about that in a second. The king of Sodom, on the other hand, we've said this land is beautiful and fertile and awesome to look at. But it's also associated, if in your memory of old Bible stories, you might remember Sodom and Gomorrah. The city of Sodom is associated with great wickedness. If you want it, take it. If you want to experience it, go for it. If you want to have it, possess it. This is the mentality, the city of Sodom. Taking, taking what we want, grabbing hold, pulling in. Melchizedek, now the king of Salem in particular, has no mother or father listed, as we read in Hebrews as well. No birth or death associated with him in the stories. He's kind of timeless that way. And he's a king of righteousness and a priest, it says, of God most high. We're unpacking our better king first, so let's leave it at that. What does Melchizedek do? We have, a, we have an offer now as Abraham is met by the king of Salem and the king of Sodom. And he's offered something from both kings. First, Melchizedek comes, the king of Salem, the king of peace and righteousness comes. And he offers in particular two things. First, he sets a table before him. There's this definitive picture of Melchizedek coming and setting a table before his enemy, the king of Sodom. So he comes and sets a table before his enemy. And then he offers, Genesis 14 tells us, bread and wine. Food, a meal, bread and wine. Suggesting in part a covenant or an agreement in part, but also sustenance. He's just come back from battle. I offer you bread and wine. Hey, no, he had plenty of Booty, plunder, but he offers him bread and wine. So there's more to it than just sustenance. Melchizedek doesn't stop there. He also mediates a blessing. He gives a blessing. He does nothing to take anything or demand anything from Abram. Now, in contrast, the king of Sodom comes and says, I will take Give me, I will take all the people that are mine. And, and probably rightfully so. There, there is people, but Abraham is rescuing them. But he says, I'll take all my people, probably including slaves and all the other pieces to the puzzle with um, who he would take with him. He says, I'll take everything, but I will let you take all of the booty, all of the plunder, all of the goods, all of the wealth, all of the cattle, all of the sh- everything else that you saved, you take for your own. I'm offering it to you. Abraham has a choice. Abram has a choice. In, in essence, the choice is, do I associate here with the king of Salem, peace and righteousness? Do I associate with the king of Sodom? The king of wickedness here in part. The king of taking. One king offers riches and goods. But ultimately takes one king offers peace and blessings in first Samuel eight. And again, you don't have to turn there, but jot it down if you want to see the passage where this comes from. In first Samuel eight, the people of Israel are offered, in essence, the exact same option. 
after Judges that we just finished our sermon series on, after Judges, the people say, we want a king. We want a king, a worldly king. And God says, aren't I enough? I've blessed you with every blessing. I've cared for you. I've provided for you. I've blessed you. I've given to you. And they say, we want a king. And God, through Samuel, says, you really want a king? The human king you desire will take. Will take. He will take from you. What will he take? And here's the list in 1 Samuel 8. He'll take your sons as soldiers field workers, weapon makers, take your daughters as cooks and perfumers, take the best of your fields, vineyards and olive groves, take a tithe of your grain and grapes, take male and female slaves, take your finest cattle and your donkeys and take a tenth of all your flocks. That sound like a good deal. This is what a king will take from you. Not only that, God tells them through Samuel and you will beg for relief but it will not come. And they respond, even so, we want a king. He will lead us in battle. He will lead us in battle. What they wanted was a leader to lead them in battle through the difficulty of what they were experiencing right there. They wanted to take something for themselves. They wanted something that would satisfy them rather than being under the love and guiding protection of a righteous king of peace in God himself. They chose poorly. Abraham has a choice to make. Who does he choose? Who will he align himself with? Well, he chooses here in our passage to align himself with Melchizedek, the giver. How do we know? Because Abram himself gives something to Melchizedek. He gives him a tithe. He gives him a tenth portion of everything. He gives. Melchizedek had given him a meal, bread and wine, set a table before him and blessed him. And now Abram responds by giving a tenth of what he had, we could say, earned. But he gives it to Melchizedek. How does he turn his back on the king of Sodom, the king of wickedness, the king of the world? In very stark contrast, he says, I will refuse to take Anything of value from you. I will take nothing, not even a shoelace, the passage tells us. I will take nothing from you. And he tells him exactly why. Lest you will be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing from this king of wickedness, the king of the world, we might say. I will give to the king of peace and king of righteousness. So he's made his choice. Church. Which king will we serve? We have a choice to make, and it's a very real choice. Will we take from the kings of this world? Will we greedily grab at the spoils, the booty, the goods, the gain that this world has to offer? Ultimately, Grabbing for those good things will lead us, like in 1 Samuel, to begging for relief when we find the things of this world cannot possibly satisfy. And they leave us empty, as they always do. Everything good will have been taken away from us. But we have a choice. We could also choose to give to the king of righteousness. 
the King of Peace, who has given freely to us. And I'm speaking of Jesus, our better King. See, Melchizedek was a king who pointed to Jesus in his work. The king of righteousness, the true king of righteousness and the true king of peace, who set a table before his enemies, who brought bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. He broke it and gave it. Jesus didn't take except to take his own life and give it to us. The bread broken was his body broken for us. The wine poured was his blood poured out, given to us. We have a better king who gives a better blessing, a better offering. And our response, our choice is to pursue the kings of this world that cannot satisfy or to give to the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Who always satisfies. That's a better king. Next we continue to see in our story. It's not just a better king. But we see a better priest. A better priest. Hebrews 7. Begins to speak specifically to this. Even more. As we look more at Melchizedek. In the first 10 verses. Melchizedek in fact is the first priest. Mentioned in the Bible. While we believe in part that Adam in in perfect creation functioned in this role of of priest and, and king, Melchizedek is clearly the first priest mentioned. And this takes place 500 years before the priesthood of Aaron and Levi is established by God through Moses. It's 500 years before the priesthood officially is established. The Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system become obviously the predominant way or means of access to God by Old Testament Jews. It required constant vigilance to the law, constant animal, grain and liquid sacrifices, constant adherence to the even the most minute aspect of the smallest law. The priests themselves were representative of this covenant and this system. And although it was a covenant that God made that allowed God to dwell with his people, it was far different than the work of Melchizedek as high priest of God here. Melchizedek's priesthood did not come from a genealogical descent or birthright like the Aaronic Levitical priesthood. You had to be born into that. And only to be a priest, you could only be born into that priesthood. Melchizedek's priesthood was outside of the law. It was long before the law. He received tithes, in fact, as Hebrews tells us, as we read this morning, from Levi, the Levitical priest, Levi's father, so to speak, Abraham, in fact, paid tithes to Melchizedek. So whose priesthood is greater? Melchizedek blesses Abraham, the father of Levi, who blesses the greater or the lesser, the greater. And so we see that the greater priesthood of Melchizedek explained. Melchizedek's priesthood then is seen as superior to the priesthood of Aaron through the sons of Levi. Hebrews 7.11 in particular makes this very clear. Let me read Hebrews 7.11 specifically to you. So if the priesthood of Levi on which the law was based could have achieved the perfection God intended, 
Why did God need to establish a different priesthood with a priest in the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Levi and Aaron? A different priesthood was required. So let me ask you as we unpack this further, which priest are you following? Which priest are you serving? The temporary, earthbound sacrifices of duty or adherence to the law? Are you trying, as we sang, to do it on your own? In my men's group, we've had this constant battle for years as we do accountability. Keeping each other accountable to the things that put us on the path of meeting and interacting with God relationally. And we keep each other accountable to things like reading our Bible and praying. But how easy is it to become legalistic in that pursuit of me trying to earn something? Did you read your Bible this week? No, I didn't. No, I feel terrible about myself. I'm a terrible person. Did you pray this week? I only prayed 16 times. I didn't pray 20 times. I'm, I'm so bad. You guys keep me accountable. This is a battle because praying or reading or checking off the boxes or doing does not earn us anything. Does it put us on the path of encountering God relationally in a powerful and meaningful way? Absolutely. But we have to be so careful about this ritualistic pursuit of God by checking boxes. You, if you allow me to say this, do you think you could possibly be good enough to approach God? Do you, do I think that I can be a, good enough to approach God, then why do I approach life this way so often? Why do you? I had a friend um, worked with me at, at Mount Greylock years back, and he looked at Scripture from a Swedenborgian perspective, which um, I won't get into. But in essence, if you're good enough, if you're good enough, you get to heaven. I asked specifically, well, what's good enough? His response was about 51%. If you're more good than bad, then, then you'll get into heaven. You've, you've worked at it. You've done your part. Now, we wouldn't be so brazen to say, oh, if I'm 51% good, I'm pretty good. But we actually live our lives this way. That if the balance of my life is good, I've measured up. Why did God establish a better priesthood? Because it is impossible for the law to save us. We need a better priest. For the law, verse 19, never made anything perfect. Folks, you will never be good enough. I'm sorry to have to tell you that. Stop punching the air. Stop trying to justify yourself. You can never atone for your sins. You could be 99% there. And it's not good enough. There is no one righteous. No one who seeks God. You will never be good enough. But there is a better priest who can lead you there. Jesus, our priest, like unto Melchizedek, with no beginning and no end, called by God to mediate peace and a blessing with a priesthood higher than the Levitical priesthood. Where does his authority come from? I love this. From the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. 
Let me repeat that. Where does Jesus' authority come from? Verse 16. By the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and defeated death and rising again. Jesus' authority comes from the power of a life that cannot be destroyed. Jesus' priesthood, then, is forever. He gave his life and continues to give as he mediates in heaven for us before the Father. With no need to sacrifice for his own sins, his perfect righteousness, his perfect sacrifice are the guarantee of our better hope, of our better hope, that we may draw near to God. Verse 19 tells us, what's our better hope? That we can draw near to God. Our future is secure in Jesus. So you've seen a better king, a better priest, and we have a better model to follow. Now, it's not everybody who gets to have two roles, worship leader and preacher. And it wasn't anybody who had two roles in Scripture. But there were certain people who carried two roles, foretelling the future work of Jesus as priest and king. The model of the royal priesthood here is God's design. Melchizedek is the first to be named as such, and he served by giving and blessing. It could be said to have passed to Abraham in part, who himself was a king of his people, and he conquered other kings, but he also served as a priest as he interceded in prayer for Lot before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. And he served as a priest in the sacrifice, the offering of his son before God intervened and offered a ram in his stead. Saul was the first king of Israel who took, who took unto himself a role that was not his own when he decided as king to usurp the role of priest in sacrificing before Samuel arrived. And he did it to his own demise, both in his kingship and in his life. David, after Saul, was a man after God's own heart. He was a king who in part served as a priest. Wearing priestly garments, the ephod of God, he brings God's presence into Jerusalem, the city of peace. David, in Psalm 110, while speaking about his son, speaks prophetically about a future greater son or descendant of David who would be a royal priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we read that in Psalm 110. Jeremiah 9 speaks of a king who enters the temple as priest. Zechariah 6.12 speaks of perfect harmony between the priest and the king. And I want to read this for you. It's a beautiful passage. Zechariah 6.12. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Here is the man called the branch. He will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, he will build the temple of the Lord. Then he will receive royal honor and will rule as king from his throne. He will also serve as priest from his throne. And there will be perfect harmony between his two roles. I'm fulfilling two roles, but there's not perfect harmony between my two roles. And I don't even know what it means to have perfect harmony to see those roles come together beautifully But we see it. We see it in Jesus. 
our Lord and Savior in Hebrews 7 looks back to Jesus and looks present and future to Jesus in this role as royal priest who gives to redeem a people. A priest king who saves and blesses a priest greater than Aaron or Levi, a king greater than David or Solomon, a forever priest who can hold our forever securely, and a mighty king who doesn't take but gives his own life freely for us. How is that a model to follow? Can we, should we really emulate that? 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his glorious light. You are a royal priesthood. You are kingly priests, folks. As Melchizedek gave and blessed, you give and bless. As Jesus gave his life, you give your life, body and blood. We don't take for ourselves. We don't look out for ourselves, as hard as that is to say. We don't fight for ourselves when every ounce of us wants to fight for ourselves a hundred times a day. That's serving the kings of the world. And our satisfaction will come in that here and now. But folks, our calling is to give. We give. We give our time and our energy, sure. We give our talents, absolutely. But how about our hearts? As we give do we give our hearts in love to the people around us? Do we give our hearts in love to our Savior and Redeemer? Do we give our minds completely and let them be transformed by the Holy Spirit? Do we give of our will what I want to do, how I want to be fulfilled? That's serving the kings of this world. Serving the king of peace, the king of righteousness, is giving those things over back to him. We give it all. And we serve as priests of a new covenant, a better covenant, by which we can eternally draw near with confidence to God. Like, catch this. A better covenant by which we can eternally Draw near in confidence to God. Does that blow your mind? Brian Gill from Williamstown, Massachusetts. I can draw near with confidence to a holy God eternally because of the work of my faithful royal priest. I can't even get my head around that. And we are to mediate that covenant we are to mediate as priests that covenant to the world around us. How are we doing? That's our role. Kingly priests who give and mediate that better covenant. Let's pray as we consider that in our hearts. Let me give you just a minute to pray alone in silence before I close us in prayer, give an announcement, and then give the benediction.
give you a couple minutes. I pray this morning that you would convict our hearts of our brokenness and our desperate need for you. But Father, I pray that you would also convict us equally as powerful and more so of your sufficiency in paying the price for our brokenness and sin once for all time and forever. It's demonstrated by your eternal power, your power over life itself. Thank you for your authority. We can rest in you as our royal priest. And you've called us to join you as a kingdom of royal priests who give back to you selflessly, who give to others and mediate a blessing to the world of a better covenant. Continue to mold us and shape us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Guide and direct our steps. Guide and direct specifically, Lord, our next steps in changing to be more like you. Father, convict us. How ought we to serve you? How ought we to mediate that better covenant to those around us? In the store, in my home, in our work, at our school. Change those places, Lord, not just this place. Change those places. And start with our heart. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for what you're doing in our church. We look forward in anticipation to the Holy Spirit encounter weekend. Next weekend, we pray that you would work mightily in us. Do a miraculous work. Thank you for what you're doing in growing our church and our hearts as well. In your name we pray. Amen.